0: Okay, good morning, everyone. Most of you know that Kaimuki Christian Church has long had a strong emphasis on missions, missionaries going out to the ends of the earth. We believe that we're missionaries wherever we are, right in this community, but we've really sacrificed to send and pray for and support missionaries out there on the field. In recent weeks, the Lord has really been putting these folks on my heart. I mean, I pray for them continually, But something special has been happening in my heart and in the hearts of our leaders in the last couple of months about these long-term missionaries who have served faithfully through the decades because many of them are at or near the close of their missionary careers. So this weekend and in the following two weekends, I want to highlight their missionary careers because They represent the end of a glorious era of missions at Kaimuki Christian Church. They have served in or presently serve in Indonesia, Africa, China, and the Middle East. And you can see in this next slide, there they are. Uh, These are five missionary units. And collectively, if you take the number of years that each couple or the single has served in a particular country in Ramah on the bottom left. She went out as a couple with her beloved husband, Ken, but he passed away some years back. But if I take the collective years of just these five and uh, add them up, it comes to 157 years. And if you take them individually and multiply them, these uh, eight by the number of years he served... 299 years on the field. That's amazing, is it not? Well, it occurred to me, and in fact I've had a nagging thought as I was preparing for this message that what if the folks aren't interested in these stories? W- what if you folks are bored by what I have to tell you about our missionaries? And then I thought, that would be tragic. And that would mean that I had failed to communicate to you the compelling and exciting adventures that these lives have represented through the years and that we've been able to partner with. So it's my prayer when we come to the end of this message and the two subsequent messages that you'll agree that we as a church uh, need to honor these folks. I believe their stories need to be told. And I believe that we need to know their stories and that we need to honor them. So we'll see. Now I've decided that what I want to do is take the missionary story of the Apostle Paul which is told in the book of Acts and uh, Luke who wrote that book uh, talked about Paul's three missionary journeys before he was finally arrested and sent to Rome. So what I want to do is each weekend take one of those missionary journeys and tell about it and then relate it to a few of our missionaries of this group. I think you'll be amazed at the clear parallels between missions then and now. So, what do you think? Are you ready for a journey? Okay. Well, there's an outline in your bulletin. The church that's faithful to Christ's command will send forth missionaries. The Holy Spirit sets apart. That was true in the first century. It's also true in the 21st century. And so... Let's go back for just a moment to the opening of the book of Acts, that second chapter. That's when those disciples were waiting in the upper room, just like Jesus told them to do, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as Jesus said it would. The church was born, and it exploded in Jerusalem. I mean, priests came to believe. By the thousands, the church grew in those early chapters of the book of Acts. And for seven chapters, we read about the acts of the Holy Spirit and the apostles in uh, the city of Jerusalem. It took persecution to drive them out, but they went from chapters 8 through 12 into Judea and into Samaria. And it was in these chapters that Luke tells about the conversion of the rabbi Saul, Saul of Tarsus. On the road to Damascus, he meets the risen Lord, and now he surrenders to Christ. And he wants to be part of the church that he has persecuted. But the church wants nothing to do with him. Why would they? He was hunting them down. He was having them sent to prison. He was having them killed. But Barnabas, always the encourager, comes along and introduces Saul to the church and says, no, he's one of us now. And so by the time we get to the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, there those two are with some other leaders. This is the church at Antioch up in Syria. It says, now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, their worshiping, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Was that an audible voice from the Holy Spirit that said that? It might have been. Or it might have been a prompting in the hearts of those leaders and they came to consensus on it. But in any case, they were seeking the Lord, and he revealed his will to them so that they were to send these guys out as missionaries. It says, Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. We learn at this point, too, that John Mark, who later wrote the Gospel of Mark, went along with them as their assistant. But I've got a map here, and I'll show you the first leg of their journey. They come from up here in Antioch of Syria, down to the coast, and then sail over to the island of Cyprus and land here. And what do they do first? We'll see. They go to the synagogues where they always started speaking to the Jewish people, made their way across the island to Paphos, where they ended up at the governor's palace. And we'll read about that in just a moment. That brings us to our next point and that is that missionaries make great sacrifices and encounter great obstacles but see God do great things and that's what happened here. In fact in his account Luke makes two notes here. One of them is that Saul's name is Paul in the Greek language. Why does he do that? Probably because we're going to see that Paul now turns to the Gentiles and that would be more accepted among the Gentiles. Another change that Luke makes in describing this, he no longer refers to Barnabas and Saul but to Paul and Barnabas using Paul's Greek name but also putting him first because Paul takes the predominant role now throughout the book of Acts as the leading missionary. And so they go across that island of Cyprus visiting synagogues, finally end up And they're at the governor's palace and the governor has a counselor who is a magician who does not want the governor to embrace this message that Paul and Barnabas have. So he's contradicting them at every turn. Well, Paul, if you know anything about him, he was so mealy-mouthed and shy. um, He turned to that magician and said, you're a fraud. He said, you're a son of the devil and the enemy of all righteousness and you're going to be blinded for a time. And he was. A blindness came over that magician and it says in verse 12, when the governor saw what happened, he believed and was astonished at the power of God's message. So Paul and Barnabas quickly learned that there would be obstacles, there'd be sacrifices, but they'd see great things that God would do if they would simply be faithful. It says, from Paphos on the end of Cyprus, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Here's a map of that. We see the next leg. So they leave here and they go up to Perga in Pamphylia and John flakes out on them and goes back to Jerusalem. Did he catch a boat and sail back or did he trek back? I'm not sure. Why did he do that? Scholars are puzzled on that one. I mean, maybe it was because he was so young. You know, when we were young, and some of you are still there, I think we make foolish and impulsive decisions. Maybe it was that. Or maybe he knew that they were going to have to make a hundred-mile trek up here to Antioch and Pisidia over the mountains, and that was just, he wasn't into hiking. I don't know. But in any case, he bailed on them and went back to Jerusalem, and that caused some friction between... Paul and Barnabas. In fact, Mark was Barnabas' cousin. I can imagine him around the campfire. And uh, Mark uh, comes up, and his name comes up, and, and Barnabas says, you know, you were really too hard on him. And Paul says, are you kidding? This is nothing for babies. We, we don't need quitters on this trip. I don't know about their particular conversation, but I do know there were problems between those guys because of this, because later they separated, later came back together and even brought Mark in. But you know something I've read over the years, that when missionaries return early from the field, 80% of the time it's because they couldn't get along with fellow missionaries. It's a sad commentary. But that's not true of our missionaries, thankfully. But Mark is gone, and Paul and Barnabas press on and uh, that's what they needed to do. Well, they go up to Antioch, in uh, set, uh, Pisidian Antioch. They go to the synagogue, and Paul gets up and he starts talking to the Jews. And this is Gentile country. There are also converts to Judaism. They were called God-fearers. These were the Gentiles who were also in that synagogue, and he preaches the gospel. But he starts with Moses and the Exodus. He comes all through what we call the Old Testament, talking about the kings of Israel, the prophecies about the Messiah. He gets to Jesus. He goes all the way through the cross and the resurrection. These people are enthralled. And in fact, it says after the service that day on the Sabbath, they begged Paul and Barnabas to come back the following Sabbath. And so it says on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Well, Paul and Barnabas turned to these rabble-rousing Jews, because some of the Jews and some of the Gentiles believed, but they turned to these rabble-rousers and said, it was necessary for us to go to the Jews first, but because you've rejected this message and consider yourselves unworthy of salvation, we're turning to the Gentiles. Because our own prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier said in his writings that the Jews were to be be a light to the Gentiles for salvation. And so this was a turning point not only in their mission but in the course of church history and in the history of the world. When they turned to the Gentiles and said the gospel is now clearly for Jews and Gentiles all who will believe. Well, the Gentiles heard this and they rejoiced that they'd been considered worthy and fellow members of the church. It says the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Wow, can you imagine that, how that just went from town to town in that whole area? But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So what do they do now? Go home? No way. They went on to Lycaonia, preached the gospel there, made converts, established the church. They went on to Lystra and to Derbe. But it was in Lystra that uh, something interesting happens, recorded in Acts chapter 14. Th- there's opposition, and God is bringing miracles through these guys. And one particular miracle is when there was a man who had been born crippled. And in the name of Jesus, they gave this man his ability to walk again. Well, the people saw that, and they just believed that the gods had come down among them. They brought out garlands for them, hakules. They brought out animals they were going to sacrifice to them because they thought they were Zeus and Hermes. They're gods. And, and Paul and Barnabas said, no, no, we're men. Don't worship us. And they pointed them to the Lord. But then those rabble-rousing Jews came in amongst that multitude, turned the whole crowd into a mob, and they ended up stoning Paul and dragging him out of the city, leaving him for dead. Luke says the disciples were standing around him. I can just imagine that. There he is laying out on the ground thinking, what are we going to do now? And it says, Paul rose up and said, let's go back into the city. Are you kidding? That's exactly what they did. And he encouraged the disciples there. Then they went on and retraced their steps, encouraging disciples in every city they'd been to and appointing elders in each of those newly formed churches. Isn't that amazing? Missionaries do those kind of things. It's heroic to us and it's inspirational for sure. So the church sends out those whom the Holy Spirit selects. They encounter obstacles and make great sacrifices, but they do see God do great things. And the church that sends them partners with them in that. What do you do with missionaries like that who complete their course? Well, hearing what God has done through his faithful servants, the church will honor them. That's what happened when they got back to Antioch. It says, from there... They sailed to Antioch in Syria, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. You can see on this map, they sailed right back, missing the island of Cyprus, to Antioch. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That really struck me when I read that. Because I thought, wow. I mean, they could have brought a report that was highlighted by, you know what? They ran us out of one town after another. They harassed us. They talked against us. They contradicted our message. Why, they even stoned Paul here and left him for dead. Di- no, that wasn't the emphasis of the report. It was on what God had done. And how he had opened the door of faith for the Gentiles. That is typical of the missionary reports we receive back. We receive annual reports from all our missionaries, and it's more than these folks. We have many more than that, but regular reports, and it's always what God is doing. Yes, we can pray for them, they say in these areas, but they're giving glory to God. Well, the church at Antioch welcomed and honored these returning missionaries, and I want to turn now to a couple of our missionary units. In this message and tell you just a little bit about the obstacles but the great things that God has done as well. Let's start with Jack and Jill. It was 1978, just a year before D and I came as an associate pastor to this church. He'd been here because they were delayed, couldn't get a visa, but then this church sent them to Indonesia. We'll show you a little video of their travel after eight, nine months in Honolulu with Kaimuki Christian. Got a video here. So they leave here, and they go to this island in Indonesia. And uh, this particular island is about the size of Tennessee and has 90 million people on it. That'd be like everybody west of the Mississippi. It's a dense population. And... uh, This particular nation, about 1,700 islands in the Indonesian chain, has the largest Muslim population in the world. And so I asked Jack, what are some of the obstacles and what are some of the things you've seen God do? He sent me an email, and Jack is a master of understatement. Here's what he said, well, it's been difficult working sometimes in a country that's predominantly Muslim, there are some very resistant areas and people groups. Hello. We've been reading about Indonesia for the last several decades, all the Christian churches that have been burned to the ground by militant Muslims. Not only that, just a couple weeks ago, the newly elected mayor of Jakarta, whom they call the governor, after he had won the election by a landslide, was arrested and sentenced to jail for two years because um, of blasphemy. That was the charge. During the election campaign, he took issue with the Muslim imams who said it would be against the will of Allah for any Muslim to vote for a Christian for their governor. And he said that that was wrong and because of that, after the election, when he won, he's going to jail for two years. So yeah, there's resistance there for sure, and the Jack and Jill have encountered that. Secondly, Jack says, finding young people who are willing to be trained and to step out of their comfort zone and go to the 132 unreached people groups in our country. In other words, people that are different from them in their country. That's been a challenge as well. And then third, he said, dealing with forever changing government regulations like visas, church building permits, etc. They keep changing them. Well, now we know a little bit about that. But it pales in comparison to what these folks have experienced. In fact, several years ago, the government of Indonesia expelled all foreign missionaries. And they said, we only want nationals living here. Well, sometimes it's not ready to turn over to the nationals. Although Jack and Jill have been working diligently and they have trained seminary president and professors and church planters, and they've done a great job. But Jack and Jill were going to have to leave. So they prayed about it, and after a period of time, um, made a decision, and Jack surrendered his American citizenship to become an Indonesian citizen so they could stay and work in the country. And uh, this next July, they'll transition, but they will have been there 40 years on, on that soil. Well, in addition, they saw their children grow up there in Indonesia, go to the mainland, and they're separated from them by the miles now, including their twin grandchildren. So there's sacrifices, certainly have been obstacles, but they've seen God do some great things. Here's what jo- uh, Jack said. We've had the privilege of working with a number of foreign workers and many amazing nationals who have grown up through the ranks. We've seen nearly 40 churches planted in our immediate region, nearly 2,000 throughout Indonesia. We've also had the honor of training many young people to plant and lead many of these churches. Multiplying ourselves in their lives is perhaps the most rewarding aspect of our work. Well, like Paul and Barnabas, Jack and Jill have seen obstacles. They've made sacrifices, but they've seen God do some great things. And we've partnered with them in it. Well, let's move to East Indonesia now, to the island of Timor. And we've got a little video to show you of Rema and her husband, Ken, who back in 1992 went to that island. Uh, Ken's sister was a member of this church, and she told us they needed support to go from San Francisco over to East Timor, uh, West Timor actually, on Uh, in East Indonesia and so they have been ministering there ever since doing an amazing job. Ken, her husband, was one of the most intense driven people I've ever known. He just had a passion to reach lost people and they saw tens of thousands of them come to Christ. I'm not exaggerating. Well, Rema stated uh, some of the challenges and the blessings and uh, she stayed and continues the ministry, may, who knows, may, may die on the mission field. She's so committed. She says, regarding the amazing and wonderful results I've seen the Lord bring to pass through this ministry, oh, how to reduce it to just a few sentences. I asked each of these missionaries, just send me two or three sentences. I knew that was tough if they'd been here 25 to 40 years. She said, it has been one of life's greatest joys to serve with my husband and four children. By now, Ken has graduated and gone to heaven, and the children have all grown up and returned to the States for university and jobs. For me, I'm still serving with our local teams. To see thousands upon thousands of people saved and continue on in Christ means changes in the next generations for eternity. Well, these folks, well, that they reach, these indigenous peoples, and you can see in this next picture just kind of the faces of these folks. And I was looking at them the other day and I thought, I have no idea when or why uh, Barack Obama joined them. But there he is, okay? But anyway, she says, making relationships with people opens the door to the gospel, particularly in these remote villages where the story has not yet been told. Evangelism meetings, follow-up discipleship, and leadership training using material we designed and revised for the unique culture of Timor, Eastern Indonesia. We trained local leaders, many of them semi-literate, opened house churches, and offered free medical clinics at both bases, opening a door for the gospel. And you know, they not only ministered on the island of Timor, but they went out to some remote islands where it is Stone Age. It is primitive conditions uh, where they've seen just a, a response to the gospel. She said, we examined, prayed for at least 5,000 per year, many were healed, and all were loved. Thanks always to God for giving us the training and skills to serve body and soul for so many, of so many for these 25 years. We conducted at least 100 evangelism meetings per year in distant villages with tough conditions and non-existent roads. And yes, of course, there's been opposition. Spiritual forces of darkness hate the light which comes through the truth of Christ. The forces of animism, where people worship the spirits around them, and other religions has led to persecution, both in the physical sense and in continual harassment. But with God's help, this ministry is still very active in making progress for the kingdom of God, It has all been worth it. Well, you can see in this slide here, there are some primitive conditions. In fact, 1998, Phil Spaulding from our church and I went there and went to some of those villages, and she's right, uh, non-existent roads. We went out one night to a revival meeting in a really remote village, forded a river, and uh, back into this mountainous area, and... um, It was amazing. I mean, during the revival that night, everything came to a halt at one point because there was a poisonous snake right in the midst of the crowd, and uh, the leaders told us there were witch doctors around the edge chanting and probably had planted that snake. Well, we went home in the moonlight that night, about midnight, and we had this Toyota Kijang going over these hills, and it was a full moon, and I counted... Twenty-seven of us, and mostly Indonesians, uh, in and on that Kijang, which is a little SUV. Um, Amazing. No wonder we had a flat tire on the way back. But those are small sacrifices. They make bigger ones, see greater obstacles. But they do great things, and see God do even greater things than anyone would imagine. Too often, in too many churches, missionaries don't get much press. They're often ignored, and sometimes they get the leftovers. I don't think that's been the case at Kaimaki Christian Church. But I did hear, I read years ago of a missionary lady in a, in a magazine I was reading talking about how she, one of her low points on the mission field was this particular incident. She said, We were used to people when we go back to the mainland giving us used things to take back with us, or sending us used clothing on the mission field, or for the folks that we served. But the low point for me, she said, is when I opened that box with excitement to find a whole box of used tea bags. (laughs) I thought, oh wow, that's great. Well, we've never done that, thankfully. But how can we honor our returning missionaries, or those who are completing their course? I uh, as I mentioned, I've been praying about this for a few months now. A couple of months ago as I was praying, I, I, I was thinking about the Holy Land trip that's planned for November as well. We're going to send a group of folks from November 4th to the 18th to Jordan to do some mission work, but mostly to the land of Israel where they'll t- take the steps of Jesus and see what, you know, some of those sites, those great sites over there. And uh, I've been on two of those trips. I, I've led to them from here. 2008, 2010, so I didn't plan to go, and I'd asked David Van Wagenen, one of our return missionaries from Africa, uh, if he would lead that trip. He's been volunteering, he and Marcia for the last three years here, and he said, yes, he would, so he's been preparing a group to go, but as I was praying one morning, I just felt like the Lord put his wife Marcia on my heart and the Joneses because the Joneses have been serving out of this church for decades, and they too are nearing the end of their career. So I went to the elders, and I asked the elders, what do you folks think about taking an aloha offering and sending Marcia with David and the Joneses also on this trip? And they said, let's do it. Well, a month passes. I'm continuing to pray. I pray for our missionaries every day. And um, I was praying one morning before the elders' meeting, And I felt like God put it on my heart again to expand the number. And I began to think about Jack and Jill, who will complete 40 years next year. And and Jack and Mahi, she served for 10 years before Jack joined her. And then they spent 25 more years in China. And David and Marcia, who were 30 years in Africa. And so I went to the elders and said, what do you think? Can Can we send them all with an aloha offering? And they said, let's do it. Well, I sent an email to these folks just to see if they'd be open to this. And I get chicken skin thinking about their responses. Let me share a few. Jack and Jill, Wow, we're floored by your proposal. We've always wanted to visit the Holy Land. It's never worked out primarily because of the cost. We always felt that if we ever did go, we'd want to go with a group of friends to enjoy the experience together. This sounds like the perfect group to enjoy this with. Rama. For many years, I've wanted to go to the Holy Land to walk where Jesus walked and ministered. I've heard so much about it. Perhaps the time just wasn't right. I'm very interested in going. As you said, it's coming toward the close of an era for many of us who serve full-time. And then Jack and Mahi. I'm blown away. Can't think of a better way to describe it. And he talks about how they had planned to come anyway. I knew they'd already signed up. He said, but we were going to use Mahi's inheritance because her parents died a couple of years ago to go on this trip. And uh, then he says, so we've already started getting excited about the November trip. And then he says, Ron, that's a lot of money. And it is, by the way. It's almost $5,000 per person. So if you take that times eight, that's about $40,000. He said, Ron, that's a lot of money. Like I said, I'm blown away at this offer. I love everything you wrote. Our hearts are knitted to you and the KCC family. We were married at KCC and spent our first year of marriage at the church. You have been such an important part of our lives and ministry for many years, and it's interesting how in many ways it is the end of an era, or at least near the end of some of our ministry involvement. We feel honored to be with you guys and those that are going. Then he concludes with this. If God has laid this on your hearts to do this, We are so humbled, honored, and thankful. Like I mentioned, we are prepared to cover our costs. If our covering all or part will enable some others to go, then we are more than happy to help out. Sounds like a missionary's heart. So what about it, folks? Should we let the Snells pay for some or all of their part and leave the other missionaries where they are? Or should we take up an aloha offering and honor these missionaries? I believe it's the latter, and I want you to consider it. I want you to pray about it in the next few weeks. The elders asked me, well, how much do you think we'd raise in a low offering? It was a month or so ago. I said, oh, probably $15,000. I've continued to pray about this. My faith is growing. I believe we'll raise $40,000. This is not coercive. An aloha offering is just that. It's whoever feels stirred and led to give. And so I'm just praying that many of you will feel led to give to this aloha offering. They've sacrificed through these decades, and I'd encourage us to pray about how can we sacrifice to honor these missionaries and bless them. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you for these faithful servants. Thank you for the gospel that has gone forth and the tens of thousands of people in various places in the world who've come to know you that will join in heaven. And thank you for the partnership that we've had with these missionaries. Lord, do stir our hearts and help us simply respond to your Holy Spirit in what we do here. And Lord, I pray also for anyone here this morning who hasn't walked through that door of faith that has been opened that gospel, that good news, applies to us as well as to the people in Indonesia. That if we simply believe what you've done, Christ, and we follow you, we have your presence, we have purpose in this life, and we have the promise of life that lasts forever. I pray that if there's anyone here today who's not yet walked through that door by faith, this would be the day. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.